today we come uh, to John chapter 12. You may notice we're not in the Sermon on the Mount. See, we're moving toward Easter. And so uh, what we do is we just receive from this collection of, of um, like daily readings called the lectionary. And this is the gospel text for today. John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. This is what we read. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard. John tells us what this is. It's an expensive perfume. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So may God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. So I was, I was uh, born and raised in San Diego, and uh, that's also where I learned to drive. And Southern California is interesting to drive in. If you've been there on vacation or something, you'll notice that there's a lot more density in Southern California than in Iowa. That's just what we call traffic. Um, and so when you're, when you're learning to drive, you have to do so with a measure of intentionality and care. Um, to my memory, it's mostly because in, the, in between lanes, if you have a motorcycle, uh, you can just go right up the middle there. And so intentionality and care is required lest you, you know, veer off and, and um, hit somebody. And so I learned to drive in California, but I did the bulk of my driving in mid-Michigan's suburban and rural spaces. Uh, needless to say, my tact as a driver in dense traffic didn't apply. See, I didn't really encounter a lot of traffic in, um, you know, like cornfields. But what I did encounter for the first time was a gravel road. Now, I'm, I'm aware that there are gravel roads in San Diego. Um, I just didn't drive on them. But when I got to Michigan, I learned that you can drift on gravel. You can like fishtail. You can do all sorts of fun and exciting things. And so teenage Kyle would, I would go ham on the gravel road. I actually landed on a farm in the, like the driveway, which felt like a road was a quarter mile long. And you could do all sorts of things. And then when you get Gravel plus snow, it, well, it can get a little risky, but here's my point. Um, one of those, you know, glorious gravel road days, I was driving home from a friend's house, and I had a not-so-glorious moment. You see, on the, on the road, there was an animal, a creature of the night, if you will. I don't know if it was a possum or a raccoon, but um, that animal had met its end the night prior, and over the course of that summer's day, it had ballooned up on the road. And I thought, you know, because teenage Kyle is good at measuring the clearance of my vehicle plus said animal, that I could, you know, just clear it. Instead, that animal um, stayed with me. <laughs> and it made its way 
up under the car. It even made its way up onto the backside of the car. I don't know how that happens. But it, it was interesting, those following moments, because, you see, up until that moment, I had this awareness that death had a scent. But until that moment, I didn't realize how death could assault your senses. And if you're thinking, well, Kyle, that's silly, just like roll the windows up and put on the AC, you would think. But a gravel road plus dead animal equals like cement. And when you turn on the AC, it just came right in your face. So there was no escaping it. It was just, it was right there. And, and maybe, maybe this sounds odd to you as a way to like move from a teaching text about Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus. But, but just try this on because our memories actually hold that scent in, in a unique way. Like any, t- any time I go up and I, I encounter roadkill and it, it like brings me back to that moment. And I'm like, I will, I will not drive over that thing. And, and Kate, I, I will take you up on water if that's cool. Um, so, so just try this on with me. When, when you read about another military advancement in Ukraine and countless people are displaced or killed, like what does that smell like? When you see a moment of celebration in the black community that's hijacked with stories about more violence at the Oscars, and now it's like this thing, the slap, like what does that smell like to you? Thanks, Kate. When you open your text thread with your friends, what does that smell like? When you scroll through your platform of choice, what is in the air? Like, does anything assault your senses? See, the gospel, according to John, is unique. You have what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John is this later gospel, this biography of Jesus' life. And John is thought of by some as like a mystic. And so if you... If you've ever felt like displaced in the church or maybe a little out of sorts in Christian spaces, John is your guy. And what he's going to do is he's going to write this gospel to help invite all of your senses into, a, into the story. See, whatever the, the scene may be, John, like he turns the volume up on what's going on. You'll, you'll have in John 3 and 4 these two, uh, just for example, these count, contrasting scenes. You'll have this uh, religious leader, this enlightened man come to Jesus in the dark and step away without knowledge. And then in chapter 4, you'll have this, this scene where a woman who's an outsider, an ethnic minority, encounters Jesus in the broad light of midday sun, and she comes away with knowledge of Jesus. This contrast of light and dark, of death and light, is woven into John. And when we get to John 12, that stuff that's already turned up loud, like, goes to 11. And so if you're not there already, just, like, flip or tap your way over to John chapter 12 with me. And we're going to just work our way through this passage bit by bit um, to catch a whiff, if you will. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him.
If this is your first time in this passage, or maybe like your first time in a long time in the gospel according to John, you have, have um, picked a doozy of a day to, to step into it. Perhaps you noticed a little detail, uh, namely that there was a man who was once dead and is now sharing a meal with Jesus. And I don't know, perhaps it's because I've spent the bulk of my adult life in church spaces or working in church spaces more specifically, that when I read a detail about a dead man sharing a meal with Jesus, I'm like, oh yeah, that's par for the course. This is anything but normal. Just, just try and, and track it with your imagination someone who is no longer alive sharing a meal with them. What, what, what would you say what would you do? Like what, perhaps this is a season where that's a very real memory for you and you're trying to process through that. This is the scene we're in. There, this is anything but normal. And here's what I mean, because the chapter before, chapter 11, actually starts out with us meeting Lazarus, but we don't meet Lazarus through an interaction face-to-face with Jesus. Instead, Jesus gets a report. He gets a report from Mary and Martha, who are the sisters of Lazarus, and they come and they say, like, attend to Lazarus, he is sick. But this isn't just um, someone who Jesus met along the way and was chummy with. No, the, the language that the sisters employ and that they bring is the one you loved. The one you love is ill. So this is somebody that Jesus has a deep abiding affection for, and he is ill. And instead, like when I would think, my goodness, like the God of love would be compelled to move toward Lazarus. Instead, Jesus waits. He just sits in it. And to the disciples' mind, this is actually a pretty good move. The logic plays out because um, where they're being invited back to is this place called Bethany. Bethany is near Jerusalem. This is like the south side kind of a thing. And on the north side is where Jesus did the most of his ministry. And so they're like in between and being invited back to the south side. But the last time that Jesus rolled up in the south side, people picked up stones to kill him. So to the disciples' mind, for Jesus to go back there is like stepping into the realm of death. So they're I'm guessing, and that's all that it is, probably cool with Jesus not going back. But then as the scene unfolds, what you encounter is that Jesus makes up his mind to go back to Bethany. And, and, and just to get a sense of how out of sorts the disciples were with this new move of God on display in Jesus, just listen to, to Thomas. He's like the realist of the bunch. This is how Thomas responds to Jesus' bid to go back to Judea and, and, and visit Lazarus. This is John eleven sixteen. Then Thomas the twin said to the rest of the disciples, and this and, uh, to my ears is like kind of deadpan, let us also go that we may die with him. It's almost just, he's like, all right. Like, I think Thomas just says what all of us are thinking. So as you go along and you encounter Thomas, it, like, he, he tunes in. And, and for me, when I read it, I'm like, yes, I'm, Thomas, I'm with you. Why would you go back? But when they arrive in Bethany, death has already come. And death didn't come for any of the disciples. Instead, death came for Lazarus. And what you learn is that he's already been in the tomb for four days. So Jesus, who's moved by grief, he actually decides to move 
even closer to Lazarus. At first, he's encountered by Martha, who says, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Then he, he invites her to trust him. She affirms that she does trust him. And then Mary comes and she falls at his feet and says, if you had been here, my brother would still be here. And moved with grief, he actually goes toward Lazarus. And this is what we see unfold. This is John eleven thirty eight. Jesus once more deeply moved. I just want to stop right there. If you've had a conception of the God of the universe, or, and, and God, by the way, is just like a title. When God decides to disclose who God is, he says something that's kind of amazing. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, I'm, I'm gracious, I'm compassionate, I'm slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and kindness. That is the God of the Bible. That is the one who we see revealed in Jesus. And Jesus, once more deeply moved, he goes to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And these are Jesus' words, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, again protesting, this is, in case you didn't know, John tells us, this is the sister of the dead man. By this time, there is a bad odor for he has been in there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see, you will see the glory of God. And so they took the stone away and Jesus looked up. You just could imagine Jesus just looking up to the heavens. And this is what he prays in the presence of those people. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands were wrapped. His feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. If there is a passage that upon reading like sins chills up my spine. This is it. There's something about what Jesus does in the face of death that grips my imagination. And it's, it's, this is the scene before we get to our passage. This is what's in the air. This is anything but normal for this man to be dining with Jesus because this man who's literally just been loosed from death's garb is like reclining at a table, which is just the Jewish way of saying post it up and eating a meal. Like, th- there they are. It's, it's this image of intimacy, of friends. But that's not all. If, if, you're, um, if you went to chapter 11 with me, go back to chapter 12. Check out verse 1. And specifically, just check out these words. Six days before the Passover... These words kind of set the scene, and if we were a bunch of good, Torah-observant Israelites, we would get what's going on. We would smell what's in the air. So if you're not, like, up on your Jewish festivals and holidays, um, that's cool. Uh, Passover is the holiday that commemorates Israel's God delivering them from slavery and death in Egypt. And so every year they would have this ceremony, this meal together to remind themselves how God made a way through death into life. Passover is a paradox. It's actually where death gives way to life. And so here in our scene, you have six days before Passover, 
the, the festival where people will literally say with their bodies in taking in a meal that death gives way to life. You have that in the air, and then you have a dead man. Well, now he's alive. You have a previously dead man sitting at the table with Jesus. What do you think is in the air? What does this scene smell like? Well, we get to keep reading. Go with me to verse 3. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And just, um, just let this settle into your imagination. The, the house is not like what we would maybe imagine as a house or an apartment where there's multiple rooms and a hallway. It's just a, like a room like this. This would be lavish. It's just one room, and so... You'd imagine this low table, Jesus there, and Mary comes over, and then this expression of intimacy, like, opens this up. And you'd have to think, like, in the same house, there's not soap, like, hygiene's not a thing on the scene. There's likely, like, animals in that space. So this is a welcome scent, but it's, it's a pint of this stuff. And it's, it's in this moment where all of a sudden, surrounded by death and decay, a new scent comes out. And, and just look at what happens here. This is verse 4. But one of his disciples, this is an apprentice of Jesus, Judas Iscariot. And what's kind of interesting about Judas' last name, or his title, really, it's not his last name. But it's the same word that would be translated as the dagger man. So it's this like revolutionary spirit that's in him. Judas the dagger man, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And then John, like with this little note on the side, just kind of whispers to us. He goes, yeah, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And then he keeps going. See, John, John doesn't cue us in. He doesn't clue us in to Mary's motivation. We, we just all of a sudden see this lavish act of devotion and adoration. But, but he does let us know a little bit about what's behind this other act. And, he just, and we just heard it. We just heard that whisper that he used to keep the money bag. What's so curious about that word, John could have chosen a number of words for money bag. Instead, he chose this word that has what's called, it's a semantic range, the available choices of words. It's the same word for coffin. Judas is the one who keeps the coffin and he reaches in for his own good. Do you think there's something in the air in this passage? See, the point, the point here is as Mary moves with devotion and adoration towards Jesus, Judas contrasts that, and he chides her. Like, what we see Jesus saying here in a moment of, leave her alone, the language is stronger. It's actually something like, release her, as though Judas's words are meant to hold her back and restrain her. Instead, there's something different that happens. So teaching on this passage... An early church father, uh, John Chrysostom, he like goes off on Judas here. And I just want to read you one paragraph 
of, of this. Listen in. For a dreadful, a dreadful thing is the love of money. It disables both eyes and ears and makes men or women worse to deal with than a wild beast. Allowing a man to consider neither conscience nor friendship nor fellowship nor the salvation of his own soul, but having withdrawn them at once from all these things, the love of money makes those captured by it its slave. This is one paragraph from a whole sermon where John Chrysostom is going in on Judas because there's something that's gotten into the fabric of his being that stands in opposition to the worship of Jesus. And I won't read it because it would, you know, basically fill up the rest of our time and we have some other stuff to get to. But what Chrysostom goes on to say is that this love of money actually gives way to something else. And it's more severe. It's this idea of power. Of, of which, which cultivates pride, like pride of place, or just that I actually hold esteem over and against other people. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to hold up like John Chrysostom. He's like a dude from the fourth century. I, I mean, I'm, he's not the, the authoritative source on John. I just read a sermon and thought it was interesting. And it got me thinking when he, when he talked about how this gives way to power, like, think about the scene that we're in. Just, just try as you may in your imagination to imagine this scene. For Martha and Mary, their brother who was dead, among the dead ones, is now alive, and they're holding a meal in Jesus' honor. This is a place of celebration, like the delight that's there. And so she's expressing her delight and gratitude. And then this, like, intrusion with Judas' words comes in. So it got me thinking about this. Who holds the power in this scene? I think this is a really important question for us as followers of Jesus to consider as we engage the Bible, especially living in 2022, because, you know, we're also, we'll hear so many stories about the abuse of power. But here's what I mean by power. This is just one's ability to shape circumstances in order to meet basic needs or the needs of others. That's what I mean by power. It, it can extend to physical needs. This is like food and water, clothing, housing, health, safety. It can, it can actually go to something like social needs of belonging, of, of loving someone and receiving love in turn, and even spiritual needs of like making sense of my life in the world. And to be honest, most of the people that call the Gateway Church home are like attending to social and spiritual needs. But the community that Jesus is cultivating is primarily concerned about meeting tangible needs so that they might then encounter the reality that it's not like you have to have your stuff together and then get to the spiritual things. It's actually that Jesus moves towards you. But this is power, the ability to meet the needs of yourself and others. So who has the power here in this scene? You don't have to say it. Is it, is it Judas? Is it Martha? Mary? Jesus is like the Sunday school answer. We could just throw that out there. You see, I, I, I think this is a helpful question because I don't know if power and really how we get power or acquire power has changed too much. Most often it seems as though it just comes by virtue of where you're born. Like choices you didn't even make and all of a sudden you just have it. Like, just by virtue of being a white dude in the middle of Iowa, I don't have a lot of, like, strain <laughs> on my social life. I can walk down a sidewalk, and I don't think I threaten too many people. Not that I'm, like, a foreboding presence anyways, but, but, but just think about this. Like, in most of our social contexts, 
if men have more social power than women, white people have greater power than black or indigenous or people of color or Asian or Pacific Islanders, like cisgendered heterosexual people have more power than LGBTQ plus people. Adults have more power than children. Middle-aged more than elderly people. Neurotypical people have more than neurodivergent. The wealthy people have more power than the poor. Like on and on you could go. So who has the power here? And, and the reason that I, I'm lingering here is because I think that this is a fascinating, fascinating way for us to consider what Jesus is doing. What is in the air? Anybody care to venture a guess? Death. Death is in the air. And what does Jesus do amid death? Well, when, when an act of devotion is is poured out, and then death piles on. Listen to what Jesus says. He says this, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Maybe you're thinking, but Jesus, um, I know how this story goes. This is six days before Passover. That's the Last Supper. So this is like the second to Last Supper. The cross is a little ways away. Like this is not the day of your burial. No, this is like this prophetic act by this woman who has the capacity to actually have heard Jesus. Like the disciples are squabbling about money and about power, and she sees and hears Jesus clearly so that she could actually do what? Anoint him, to, to bless him. And hear the advocacy that Jesus has for her. And I... I hope that we come back here time and time again. I think it's needed, but um, Jesus does not displace or discipline Mary. So if you're, if you're a woman here, um, the gospel is good news. And it's a little silly that a guy is saying this, but let me just like, do a brief catalog of how the gospel is good news. And this is Jesus' movement in the gospels. Jesus talks to women as equals, not as inferiors. What we have is this scene of the Samaritan woman in John 4. Jesus accepts a rebuke from a Gentile woman. This is in the region of Tyre and Sidon in, in Matthew 15. And then he commends her for it. Like she, Jesus gives her a hard word. He calls her a dog, which I don't still know what to do with that. Anytime you call a woman a dog, it doesn't matter the context, like them's fighting words. And yet she receives it and gives him a word back. And he commends her for that. And Jesus praises women for their faith and their piety. This is the poor widow, or the, the poor widow with her meager offering in Luke 21. There's the bleeding woman who you find in Mark 5 who reaches out and in the midst of a crowd touches Jesus' garment. I love this scene. Jesus says, who touched me? It's like, uh, Jesus, there's a crowd pressing in on you to the point of death, and you're asking, who touched me? And he's like, yeah, I felt some power go out. Who touched me? And he restores this woman. Or if you think, we just sang a song about this, like the ten virgins who are waiting faithfully for the bridegroom in Matthew 25, and the list could go on. See, and it will. Uh, Jesus heals women in ways that shows concerns for their unique difficulties in a society that elevates men. And then he puts them in places of honor. We see this so clearly in this beautiful scene in Luke 13. There's a woman who's like bent double. I, I don't, for 18 years, Jesus heals her and then calls her a daughter of Abraham. That's the only time in the New Testament that that title is used. 
which is actually like an offense to the people around because to be a child of Abraham is like to be a person of esteem. So Jesus esteems the person who is not esteemed. Come on. Like if we were a little Pentecostal, we'd be feeling it right now. But like, and then hear this. Jesus even commends Mary of Bethany in Luke 10. The woman that we encounter at Jesus' feet in our passage in John 12 is seen in Luke 10 at Jesus' feet. And what do we hear in that moment? that she has chosen the better thing. So I just, this is not like in my notes, but um, if you have ever felt, and you're a woman, whether you're a teenager, a preteen, or you are getting up there, uh, and you're like, I, I think that God is inviting me to do something. Could this be a place for you to do that thing? I hope the answer is yes. And my hope is, is that not me, but other people who reflect you back to you better than I can will like help find a way for that to be true. Perhaps that means actually like, I don't know, doing what Linnea does is encouraging us. Like that's a gift she possesses and she gives out of that gift. Or perhaps it's teaching or I don't know what the heck it could be. But I want to see that fostered and flourish because that's the movement of Jesus. And when this woman offers up a scent, offers up something that makes death actually smell sweet, Jesus receives her. And if that's not enough, this is the kicker for me. In the chapter right after ours, in John 13, we see Jesus doing some things. It's a pretty famous scene. Jesus will end up kneeling down and washing his disciples' feet. And, and that illustration, John will say, is to show what it is to serve. Can you think in our passage today if there was anybody serving? If you go to verse 2, you'll read something like this. A dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served. Now, this is just my, you know, conjecture. I could be so wrong about this. But I'm curious if Jesus saw what it looked like to serve and sometimes it's like this, con like Martha's kind of, like we throw shade at Martha because, oh, she's like doing that thing and Mary's the one. But like, I don't know. Martha serves in John 12. And then in John 13, Jesus is serving. We see Mary at the feet of Jesus anointing him. And then in John 13, we see Jesus at the feet of his disciples. Like, what could this be but a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus? And it's epitomized in these sisters See, devotion to Jesus, it just, it reimagines, it changes the scent of death and it makes it sweet. This is actually what we as a church can give to the community. So in places where death is real, and I know, I know that there are like people in our community who are wrestling with this right at this very moment. Like we can, we can stand in the midst of that in such a way that there can be a, like a blossoming of, of something beautiful. Because John 12 is ultimately a reminder that death will not have the final word. You see, we're moving toward the cross, which is a place of death. If you grew up, I don't know, Lutheran or maybe in a high liturgical church, this, is, this Sunday is called Passion Tide, which means that this is actually indexing our hearts towards death. But it's also the end of Lent, which is a season where we receive the reality of death and remember that it's not the end. 
Like, we actually have another response to that. And I know that a lot of times that our, like, worship can be kind of low-key, and that's fine, like, temperament, personality, whatever. But we are the people who actually make the claim that because Jesus defeated death, we live amid death with a, something different. Am I, we're here together, right? Like, we're experiencing the same passage. Like, there's something happening and at the beginning of January, it was kind of funny. There were four people in this room. You know, there was a snowstorm, but um, I, I don't know. It's Iowa. Like, it'll probably snow tomorrow. Who knows? <laughs> but if we are, are the type of people who can embrace the reality of death, but with a different posture... And we can do that together and we can attend to our needs and we can display our devotion to Jesus. And rather than sitting in the back and going, that probably would have paid for a lot. We can, like, we can pour on the perfume. I just think we have to ask, like, what, what do I smell? Like when I, and maybe that's an odd question to ask. And maybe you're a teenager and you're like, I, I smell a lot right now, Kyle. And I don't know, I don't know, but maybe there's something where you, like, when you go to this passage and you read Judas's response and that is what resonates with you. Like, this is actually an invitation. This is the invitation of Jesus every stinking week that his grace is sufficient. And actually, it's our weakness where that's brought to completion. See, church, this is, this is what we, we do is we come to the place where we wrestle with death and then we receive it as, a, as this paradox that actually gives way to life. Mm-hmm.